G'day humans. Well, in a safe space for dangerous ideas. Here's a dangerous idea for you. How about we not fire people and ruin their lives and ruin the lives of their young families for the crime of being silly enough to try to have a nuanced conversation on Twitter? How's that? How's that for a, a crazy idea? Here's an equally crazy idea. How about we not try to debate whether or not Hitler was worse than Lenin or Lenin was worse than Hitler on a social media platform designed to amplify irrationality, to reinforce people's pre-existing beliefs and to demonize other people's positions. Uh, today's guest did that and was fine for it. Both things are wrong. Uh, I hazard a guess in my ethical metric that the firing was worse than the foolish engagement on Twitter. But you can judge that for yourself after hearing his side of the story. Uh, he's a journalist. Uh, I received a, a message from him just on Twitter, uh, hoping that he might be able to chat to me. And I didn't know the guy. Turns out I had once interviewed him many, many, many years ago on HuffPost Live uh, about logging in Asia. He's been a bit of an expert on Asia. He's lived in Asia. He lived for four years in Japan. He lived for six years in South Korea. He lived for three years in China. Uh, he spent a year traveling around Southeast Asia. He spent two years in Nepal and India. He was apparently homeless in Mumbai. I wish I'd asked him about that. That sounds interesting. Of all the places you could choose to be poor, why choose the place with the largest slum in the world and one of the poorest metropolises? in the world, but uh, maybe you don't have a choice in the matter. Nonetheless, he's a lefty, he's a democratic socialist. Uh, he's married to a diversity, equity and inclusion trainer from Peru. The pair of them have lived in Peru, in South America, all of which is to say, this is a guy who is reasonably cosmopolitan. If he is a fascist, he certainly does a good job of hiding it by, you know, marrying a Peruvian and living in Asia for year after year. Um, and I won't preempt his tale here. I'll let him tell it himself. But long story short, he moved from Peru to uh, to Georgia, the state of Georgia. I mean, the, <laughs> the American state of Georgia, not the state of Georgia uh, in, the, in the former USSR. And uh, then he got a job, uh, a big, high-profile, important job as far as journalism goes. There are not a lot of jobs like this anymore. At a big newspaper in a big city, the flagship newspaper of a major U.S. market as a member of the editorial board and a columnist. That is a high-prestige position. And uh, David Velosko lasted one column. And now he's out on his ear. He needs your help. I'll be subscribing to his Substack. It's an incredible tale of cancel culture. Uh, it's honestly heartbreaking and shocking that this is happening in 2023. It, it, you know, if this was a 2017 story or even a 2021 story, I'd be like, oh yeah, those were crazy heady days before we understood how pernicious the effect of social media is and how deranging it is on people's good judgment. But the idea that by 2023, we're allowing social media uh, brouhaha's and mischaracterizations by a mob to have real world effects that we haven't all decided as a community and that publishers and editors uh, haven't decided 
that we're just going to quarantine and firewall social media as being its own garden of horrendous stupidity and uh, what takes place there. It's like, you know, what goes on in social media stays in social media should be the adage. Uh, anyway, that didn't happen and I just hope that we can publicise this and I hope you enjoy hearing David Velosko tell his tale. to meet you yeah good to good to see you. well i guess uh many years ago we spoke briefly once well um, it was there was a there was an asian uh an asian american young lady who was in the in the news for having accused people of racism i think unfairly Sun Park. yeah yes. and i came on right after that segment or right before it to talk about illegal chinese logging Amazing. That's right. You remember that? <laughs> that is so funny. Yeah. That is bizarre. You, well, I remember the context of that day and how surreal it was. Yes. So were you via webcam or were you in studio on HuffPost? I was, uh, no, I was, it was webcam. Um, actually, I think, I think it might've just been a phone call. And I remember I didn't know this story, the, the Suey Park story. So I was like, she must have been on before me because I was like listening to the segment <laughs> and I was listening. I was like, what is this? This is wild. That's hilarious. That is it's so a wild funny. Story. Wow. It's sort of hard to believe. Yeah. And then we're like, so David, tell us about illegal logging in Myanmar. <laughs> right. Right. Although now I guess I have my own story to tell about similar wild. Yeah, Exactly. I mean, let's get straight into it, and then we can talk about your background a little bit uh, and your history. But so, what, what were you doing in in Georgia? This is the state, the U.S. state of Georgia, not the uh, the country of Georgia. Uh, and who were you living with, and what was your job at the time that you were offered a, uh, a position at the Seattle Times? Uh, Georgia was interesting. Uh, no family ties. To, well, actually, strangely enough, up on my mother's side, if you go back far enough, I, I think I did have an ancestor who was maybe a slave in Georgia uh, before fleeing the United States. But that's another story. Uh, no no connection. Really? You look very white, David, for a descendant of slaves. My mother's from the Bahamas. Uh, our family's mixed. Uh, my mother married a guy of uh, Russian descent, and I'm, I'm as white as it gets. So, yes, that's... Wow. The, the dominant, that dominant Russian gene just steamrolling all the oppressed peoples of the world, including inside your own genome, David. Sorry, go ahead. Carry on. Uh, Georgia was a, was a, you know, it seemed... Great access to nature, and and uh, Atlanta's a fantastic city. Uh, so it was really a decision. It was a. I'd been out of the out of the U.S. for the better part of twenty years, and when I came back to the U.S., I wanted to be close to family. So we all picked Georgia as a place we could all live together and buy houses within walking distance, and sort of you know be together as one big happy family. So we did that. It was great, um, and. Uh, so I was there. Uh, my baby daughter was born while we were there. Uh, oh, congratulations! Thank you very much. Uh, she's eight months old. So it's just it's just becoming okay. It's what I always say to parents at eight months. Uh, as the like that was for me the first moment at which it started being like, oh, this isn't the worst thing that's ever happened to me. But the first eight month months were pretty much the worst thing that's ever happened to me. For whatever that's worth. 
that I, that resonates. <laughs> it was it was like it was like, am I going to sleep again in the future? Like, am I going to be able to? Mm. Like, it was just it was like Twilight Zone, and I was I was just in a constant daze. Um, and she was exceptionally more colicky than even the doctors were like, this, this is unusual, but we've, we've never seen, <laughs> you know, that's bad. Yeah. When the doctors are like, whoa, bro, your baby is annoying. Yeah. 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 But now she's as, as you know, she's not colicky anymore and, and curious and, and as cute as, as a, as a thousand puppies. So, um, but, uh, so we were there, and um, at the time, I was working for a financial analysis news outlet, uh, and um, then sh- we were in we were in Atlanta. We were getting settled. We were having a good time. I got the offer, uh, and it was a tough call. I got the offer to be a columnist and a member of the editorial board at the Seattle Times, which is means you know selling the house, moving across country, leaving the the sort of family unit that we had created, you know, where my, my parents and my brother and his wife and kid, and it was, it was a tough decision, but it was also quite a, uh, uh, prestigious role. And, uh, and Seattle was appealing, uh, we, you know, a very progressive city and we're quite progressive. So we thought it'd be great to try living there. Uh, and so we, we pulled the trigger and decided to make the move and came out and, uh, Sorry, David, what does it mean to get that call? Like, how do you, uh, no newspaper has ever called me and been like, would you like to be on the editorial board? Like, why are they looking, why are you on their radar at all? Have you applied? Do you know someone? What's the, no, I applied. Going? I, I, you I applied, applied right? yeah. I, I, I mean, I had been applying to various places. I usually am sending out my resume here and there, you know, trying to take advantage of opportunities. And um, so I did, I applied. And you knew that they were looking for a columnist. You weren't applying on spec. Yeah, there was a there was an ad put out uh, that I applied f- applied to. So for the editorial board and a columnist position. Hmm. And was there a piece of writing associated with that application? Uh, yes, I think there was like a test. There was even something that to me it was like a series. I'd, I'd never experienced it before. It was a series of uh, what felt to me almost like. Um, like an IQ test or followed by an EQ test. Uh, so some of the questions were more analytic based, which makes sense to, to understand that you have uh, analytical capacity. And then also questions about your ability to, you know, how you might deal in a uh, social environment, which also makes sense because, you know, when you're on the board, you are engaging in topics, sometimes debating them. And you, I think it's important to have a personality where you, you know, you're not cantankerous and, and you, you're a good faith, uh, debater. I, so actually just explain to people who don't, who don't know the inside workings of a newspaper, what the editorial board does, what does it mean to be a member of the editorial board? Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, um, you'll have, a uh, there are multiple members. You'll sit down, you'll discuss issues that are relevant either to the city or the, the greater region, and you'll publish editorials. Editorials will not have the name of the person who wrote the editorial on them because you're speaking with the voice of the paper. And so part of that means you have to understand the paper's position on several issues. So you're not writing your own opinion about this issue. You might not even, your opinion may not even map onto the opinion of the paper in a given editorial, but you have to come to understand the editorial, the board and the paper's 
position on issues and then think about what the paper would have to say about a particular issue. This could be anything from endorsing a a city council candidate to writing about, um, you know, maybe there's a new policy with regard to orca preservation and whether or not readers should consider supporting that or not. I love how Pacific Northwest, that example that you reached for is, you're talking specifically about orca preservation. That would be something the Seattle Times uh, would be agitated about, not so much in Georgia. I imagine uh, your average person in Atlanta is not overly exercised on a daily basis about orca preservation. But yeah, that's a good explanation. So basically, newspapers have generally, most newspapers have a news division which reports on the news and is supposed to be politically impartial. And then they have an opinion section where, you know, columnists write their opinions. Uh, That's on the op-ed page, the page opposite the editorial. And then most people will be familiar with there being an editorial, like in the same section as opinion, which is an unsigned opinion of the newspaper and the formal position of the newspaper. And that's what you were going to be involved in writing in addition to writing columns that would have your name on them about political and cultural issues. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And uh, so I, I would say, well, I wrote one, one in my first and only column. <laughs> and it wasn't even about orcas. You should have written about orcas, David. Hindsight's twenty twenty, baby. I, I wrote an editorial about orcas. So what happens? You get you pack up your house and you you drive the move, the moving van like the Beverly Hillbillies across the country and you land in rainy Seattle. Yeah, basically the the, the wife and baby uh, flew out ahead of me. I drove the moving van. They went and were doing apartment hunting while I was um, uh, driving across country, camping along the way, which was nice. Uh, so I got to see Yellowstone, for instance, and and places like that. Um, it helped save money on hotels and also absolutely gorgeous. Uh, and then I arrived. By the time I got there, uh, my wife had already found us an apartment. Now, there were there was a decision process in the beginning, which I later ended up regretting. But um, she was asking, you know, where should we settle? Because there's it's obviously cheaper outside Seattle. And I said, well, you know, I've been reading these articles about how, you know, a lot of people during the pandemic, and with the protest in Seattle, a lot of people have left the inner core of the city and the city leadership is making efforts to revitalize the downtown area. And since I'm not a native Seattleite, I think it would be a good um, a good symbolic gesture for us to take up residence, the newest editorial board member in the heart of the city. Right. And live in the city. If you're going to be writing about the city, live in the city, right in the city. So I said, if there's something available and you can find it, let's get an apartment like right downtown which we did, which was um, uh, expensive, not too expensive, but, you know, um, I thought it was a good move. And uh, could you break the lease on this apartment? How long was the lease? Uh, so we wanted to lock in a price because we, we got the sense and we were right that the price was going to go up very soon. So we locked it in for a year and a half. The thing is, when you do that, you save money, but you also risk a higher fee when you try to break the lease. And um, that's what hmm. that's what. Happened. And you may have to break the lease if, for example, you get fired from your job after writing one article. Just as a hypothetical, then that would be problematic. So first day at work, what's that? What's first day at work like? 
Oh, it's great. Uh, you know, you're you're in the you're in the room. You're uh, the the members are all seasoned experts in the particular areas in which they focus. You know, being things like downtown Seattle politics or education. Um, so you're 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 talking to people who you're talking to people about local issues that are that these these people they really really know what they're talking about. And so you're in a very uh, encouraging environment, um, and it's. I really felt the need to try to get up to speed as quickly as I could, reading all the books I could, trying to gain knowledge about the local issues, so I would have something meaningful to add to these conversations. You know, the first few meetings, I was sitting in silence, listening to local experts debate important topics, and and I'm taking notes and studiously writing things down like okay okay that sounds interesting and uh i i caught up to speed on a few issues somewhat quickly and was soon you know writing my first editorials the the environment was very collegial and friendly and the 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 discussions about these issues were it was always um it was always done in sort of you know it was always civil discourse it was never i guess i thought that maybe it could have gotten heated you're debating contentious issues people might have different opinions but it was always a very collegial atmosphere hmm. yeah you're basically the supreme court you know of yeah you treat each other nice even even scalia and ginsburg get along and uh, they're polite and so how far, how long have you been in seattle and how long has your family been in seattle at the point at which you actually put pen to paper for your first column that you're signing that your your name is attached to uh, I think it was uh, roughly about a month, about a month in. So my first month, it was just, you know, a couple of editorials a week. And then uh, in, into my second month, I, I wrote the first, my first column. And had you been noodling on what that was going to be? Uh, I had an idea what I wanted to write about, which was something near and dear to my heart, which was uh, the astronomical cost of childcare in Seattle, because believe it or not, the cost of childcare in Seattle exceeds the cost of putting a kid through college. Right. Sadly, that does not surprise me, given the cost of childcare in uh, Australia. But uh, yeah. So, I mean, it was just, you know, when I, when I saw that, I mean, some of the numbers I saw were $3,000, $4,000 a month. Yeah, ridiculous. We don't have that kind of money. This is, there's cheaper, uh, there are cheaper alternatives available, but, you know, so this was something I wanted. I was researching, talking to people, different experts, uh, collecting information, thinking about writing something about this, but... Uh, my boss thought and um, and repeatedly nudged me to maybe consider writing about a statue that was in uh, local the neighborhood of Fremont in down in Seattle, the statue of Vladimir Lenin, which I had never heard about. And, and who's your boss at this point? Who are you saying your boss is? The editor of the paper? The uh, sort of the head of the editorial board. Yeah. Right. Okay. And the editorial board, just for for future reference for people, is just, is separate from the from the publisher. Yeah, right. Different people. And I was like, um, uh, yeah, that sounds that's that you know, okay, a statue. I mean, personally, I I, I hadn't seen the statue. I uh, I, I find it um, 
mildly offensive that there is such a statue. And it wasn't hard for me to connect to this story personally because uh, of my family background. I mean, my grandparents on my father's side were Russian refugees and we've lost family members as a result of the legacy of Vladimir Lenin. So they were Russian refugees specifically, not from some random famine. They were Russian refugees specifically from the Bolshevik Revolution. No, later than that, uh, World War II era. Oh, got it. Okay. And they came and settled in where, New Jersey? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay. And is that why the is that why the head of the editorial board thought that you would be appropriate to write about the silliness of having a statue of Vladimir Lenin in the city? I don't think that that information was known until I wrote it in the column. Uh, I, I'd never discussed it with anybody. So, you know, especially not the personal details about family that are in the column. So why do you think he suggested it to you? Um, you know, I don't, I, I, I honestly don't know. Uh, maybe it's, um, it is a bit of a, a perennial issue, which, which I, uh, frankly, I, I wasn't fully aware. I had seen some of the earlier stories that had been written about it, but. I only ask, I, I just ask because I don't think there's anything fishy going on. I'm not implying anything, but it, it seems like, <laughs> it seems like a perennial local story that's a bit ham-fisted to try to get a non-local to write about immediately. You know how there are just some of those local stories that have been that are so well-worn in a city that the, if anyone who hasn't grown up in that city starts talking about them, you can immediately pick them as an outsider. And this, I'm just wondering if this is one of those things where everyone in Seattle knows about the fucking Lennon statue. Some people think it's a lark. Some people think it's uh, think communism was great. You know, but everyone's been round the horse on this so many times that it's like, I don't know, trying to. It is. Ex- that is exactly you're you're perfectly describing it. I mean, I had people reach out to me afterwards who even said, like, listen, your your column was well written. Uh, I, I don't mind that. It's just you are beating a dead horse. Like, do you realize how many times we've. This Everything that could have been said has been said. And, oh, yeah, thank you for parachuting in from Georgia and telling us about how silly our statue is. Yeah, welcome. It's tricky. It's a tr- it was a tricky assignment. Yeah. It's something that I think maybe I, I – I mean, I had seen the earlier stories. I guess I just didn't realize that it was that – that much of a dead horse being beaten again. Uh, maybe I think perhaps my boss might have realized that and and known better than to nudge me in that direction. But I, I don't. I can't really speculate as to why they thought it would be a good idea. It almost feels like let's try let's try throwing the new guy in the deep end and see how he see how he goes. You know, let's get him up to speed real quick. Or 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 maybe it was uh, you know, maybe it was just. That statue really is offensive, and we we want to raise our voice against it one more time. Um, I I mean I do find I do personally find it offensive, but I also, as I write in the column, say I don't think it should be torn down because I believe, you know, I'm a democratic proceduralist. I think that you know if the community wants to keep it, and that's how they feel about it, and they're okay with it, okay, you know. But at least I can let them know how when newcomers come to the city, this tolerant progressive city and you've got a statue of Vladimir Lenin in the middle of it, um, maybe I can remind people how that feels to some of the members of the city. So that's sort of the angle that I took with it. And where is this thing and what is the, how did it come to be that there's a, I mean, yeah, we don't even have to get into, I mean, it's just part the whole controversy about statues and, and the reevaluation of statues that's happened over the past, I guess, five years or four years or so. Uh, yeah. I'm, 
scandal noted, as as I like to say, scandal noted that there are lots of statues of bad white people who uh, oppressed you know minorities. Uh, and the question of whether or not the, their statues should remain. But while we're in a mood for reevaluating the historical contribution of people who we have statues to, uh, it would be it is weird to have a Lenin or, or a Stalin or a Mao or a Pol Pot or a or even a Che uh, in uh, um, in statue form. So where is this thing, and why is it there in the first place, and what do locals think of it? Uh, it's in the neighborhood, uh, known as Fremont, which is kind of, a you know, a quirky, uh, sort of hipster hippie esque neighborhood. There are, uh, it was originally discovered in a, in a Czech scrapyard by a guy named Lewis Carpenter. He was, I think he was teaching English at the time and he saw it, it was about to be melted down and turned into uh, park benches. And he thought to himself, well, I should take that thing. I should take it back to the estates, which cost him like 40 grand to do that. And I should stick it out in front of a, of a, of an Eastern European restaurant that I want to do, because that'll bring a lot of attention to my restaurant. Um, and later when people made remarks to him, when he did bring it back and they said, this is Lenin. What do you, he said, oh, I don't, I don't know anything about Lenin and communism. Never heard about that before, which obviously you can't, you can't believe that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then, uh, tragically he was, uh, he was killed in a car accident and another individual then bought the statue, got the statue off the family and, and it was erected on private property in, uh, Fremont in this neighborhood. And it stands there to this day. It's, I believe that the family is willing to take, uh, I want to say 250,000 for it, um, or best offer, so what if it's on public if it's on private property what's around it what does it look like who who is looking at it and what is around it that it's on private it's on a corner right in the middle of the main strip uh there's a couple of shops all around coffee shops restaurants and stuff and some of them are playing off the theme so there's for instance like a a, a dumpling shop right next door and they call themselves like Tsarist dumplings or something and then there's like red star coffee right. shop and they're all kind of like you know so it's like an open, unmarked mini mall in the sense that it's not public land, but it is public in that people walk across it. Just this tiny strip, yeah, but the rest of it is just the main strip of Fremont. Yeah. Weird. And is it ironic? Is it, is it Seattle hipsters, like, thinking this is kind of cute, like I might wear a Che Guevara T-shirt? or It's both. Uh, so some people make fun of it. They're, at one point, they put a dildo on his head. They put him in a tutu. They dress him up for Halloween. <laughs> they do all this stuff. But then at the same time, this past July 4th, there was, uh, you know, communists stood in front of it and gave speeches and handed out pamphlets. And I can't tell you how many emails I received when I wrote my column telling me that what kind of a person I am for disparaging Lenin, their hero, you know, who never did anything wrong and never hurt anybody. So there's definitely people who take it very seriously and have undying respect for him. Uh, some of them told me to my face that that he is their greatest hero, and and that and and uh, that whatever violence he did commit was necessary. Right. Again, let's just park the let's let's park the double standard here that you're about to get fired for uh, for pointing 
out, not the double standard about you're getting fired. I mean, the double standard that people have towards the horrors of communism and fascism, which is ultimately what you dipped your toe into and, and, the, and what triggered the hysteria. Because if a group of neo-Nazis, excuse me, I have a cold, as you may be able to tell by my by my voice and my disheveled demeanor. But if a group of neo-Nazis were going around apologizing, saying anything positive about fascism, then all hell would break loose. But you're sort of allowed to gloss over the crimes of the Bolsheviks. And, you know, to the listener who may not be paying full attention to the history of communism in the 20th century, this isn't a statue of Marx, right, which could, where there could be some debate. Well, he didn't know what he was doing. He was talking about theory. He's the founder of communism, but communism has never been truly tried. Uh, you know, he wasn't a bad person. He didn't hurt anybody. He's just a progenitor of ideas and ideals. Uh, his words have been misused or abused. I think, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but you probably have a different attitude towards a statue of Marx or Engels. This is Lenin, not quite Stalin, but let's say halfway between Marx and Stalin, right? No, I, I, I even said at one point, I believe on Twitter that, you know, if this was a statue of Marx, like that's completely different. You know, he, he believed in a democratic organic evolution of his ideas into, you know, he, he was not a fan of, you know, slitting throats and taking heads. So there's, there's a world of difference. I, I'm not, I'm not a, I'm not a Leninist. I'm not a communist, but with any ideological position, I draw the line at taking innocent life. And I thought that was something that would not be terribly controversial. Right. So the villain, as always in such situations where the mob gets its way, is not the actual initial transgression, but the brouhaha on Twitter. You write the article, the article comes out, you get the inevitable pile on from people saying, yeah, but, 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 um, and you respond how? Uh, I, so similar to the point that you were just making, I got into a discussion where I was essentially making the point that, um, listen, if this was a statue of Adolf Hitler, nobody for one second would tolerate that because we all know exactly how evil Adolf Hitler was. Right. And yet we seem to not realize how bad Lenin was. And in my opinion, Lenin, psychologically speaking, was even worse than Hitler. This was the point that I made on Twitter that, that blew up. I was very careful to point out that Hitler was obviously worse in terms of the actual scale of human suffering that he, that he literally caused, the number of lives, and the, the uniquely evil nature of, of industrial genocide. Uh, and I'm not blind to that. My own grandfather almost died in a concentration camp. I Nazis... Killed. They they cut off branches of my own family tree. I'm not I'm not unaware of the horrors of Nazism, but I do think that in a certain way, Lenin's psychology, like if you like to be technical, like Lenin strikes me as a type one psychopath, and Stalin is like a type two psychopath. Stalin, Hit, sorry, Hitler, Hitler is like a a, a Joffrey Baratheon of of Game of Thrones, like hot headed wild, insane, killing everyone all over the place. Lenin strikes me more as like a Hannibal Lecter, highly intelligent, un like calculating. And, and there's something more terrifying about that to me. If Hannibal Lecter had been uh, a buffoon, if he had like an average IQ, he wouldn't be as frightening for one thing. That's one part of it. 
the other part of it is just that, uh, and this is what got me into trouble on Twitter, was making the argument that, um, that Hitler believed that uh, the people that he targeted, and he wrote about this in Mein Kampf, he wrote about this at length in, uh, in chapter two of Mein Kampf, where he's in Vienna, and he's sort of, he, just, he describes that he's making the transition from having this tolerant attitude towards Jewish people to becoming, to embracing anti-Semitism, and whether or not he actually made this measured, reflected, like, transition, or if he's just lying to make himself look like he actually, like, thought about it, or he was just always a bigot. Um, but that's, that's actually what the title of the book is, right? Mein Kampf is not his struggle to take power. It's his struggle against anti-Semitism, believe it or not. And he, he comes up, he comes to this conclusion, the way that he arrives at anti-Semitism, and this is common, even the great Gregory Stanton, who's, uh, Gregory H. Stanton, who, who, uh, is, uh, the, uh, who heads up Genocide Watch. And he wrote that famous list of like the 10 steps to genocide in a society. One of them is you dehumanize the target. You have to start thinking of them as not human and usually like as a bacteria or a weed or an insect. These, it's common across genocides around the world. Hitler starts doing this in chapter two of Mein Kampf. He starts talking about Jews as if they're like a pestilence and a virus. And the reason for this is because you need to think of other humans as not human so that you can justify what you're going to do to them. Because if you think of them as human it's going to be harder for you to do that because you still have some sense of even monsters on the scale of genocidal tyrants still have some sense of the value of human life. So they have to kind of separate out and say like, well, these people aren't really human, so we can do whatever we want to them. The difference is that Lenin didn't feel the need to do that because he was fine killing innocent people. Even by his own standards of innocence, he would, so it's sort of the difference would be like, Someone who, I guess you could say, someone who racistly kills somebody who thinks that that person is posing a threat to their family, but it turns out they're not, they're innocent, you're just a racist monster, versus somebody who would murder their own family for sympathy votes to get elected into office. There's a difference between these two types of evils and these two types of ways of thinking. I think this is an interesting philosophical and moral discussion that belongs nowhere near Twitter. Uh, and I completely understand the, your interest in wrestling with it. I don't, uh, I don't agree with the weighing up of different evils once you reach a certain threshold. I think it's, <clears throat> it, feels, it feels unseemly, and this obviously triggered something in tweeters as well. It feels, it feels unseemly. When you have, I mean, imagine that Lenin and Hitler had only killed one person each instead of many, many millions of people. And one's initial reaction to being confronted with two murderers was to start discussing whether or not one murderer was like particularly uh, motivated by this or particularly motivated by that. By that. It, it's a kind of a read the room moment, right? Where it's like, well, hang on a second. Can't we just focus on the fact that they're both murderers? You, you know, why, why are we passing... Uh, details and kind of reading tea leaves about the relative ethical standing of each of these two two monsters. So just, and also, obviously on Twitter, you don't have the opportunity to articulate what you just articulated to me with as much nuance as you just, as you just gave it. So what, so that the listener understands what you, what you say that you tweeted was, and I'll just read it verbatim so they can hear it. In fact, while Hitler has become the great symbol of evil in history books, 
he too was less evil than Lenin because Hitler only targeted people he personally believed were harmful to society, whereas Lenin targeted even those he himself didn't believe were harmful in any way. And then you try to save it with a a doomed follow-up tweet in which you say, Hitler was more evil than Lenin if we're looking at what they did to people, and that's a pretty important metric for assessing evil. Uh, And then you say, in terms of death and destruction, the Nazis were more evil, and you say Hitler was more evil in terms of how many he killed. So, So, I mean... When I think about my experiences on Twitter, I think, what the hell are you doing, you idiot? Put the keyboard down. Put your phone down. How are you even thinking that it's going to land when you're trying to compare the relative evilness of two of the most toxic and controversial villains of all time? Well, I... What I would say to that is two things. One, I've had nuanced discussions on Twitter before, and there was something unique about the situation that I think actually relates to Seattle and my position on the board. But also, I'm recapitulating there a a slight variation on an argument by the Yale historian Timothy Snyder, who has written about the comparative evils of Stalin and Hitler. People have also compared Hitler and Mao People have said Mao is more evil because he killed more people and other people say no because those were like famine and indirect and whatever. Hannah Arendt made the comparison like the, like this argument of these comparisons goes back like 70 years and nobody has ever accused any of those people of being Hitlerites. Yeah, right. Twitter is the problem. But these arguments are these these arguments are are nuanced and you, and some people might say well this is like comparing infinities because the evils are so, are, are on such a scale like who can even who can even compare them uh and or you could say well the, the the psychological motivations behind different types of genocidal violence are important to understand and important for us to see how they evolve because they could be taking place in society today and they're different and it's important to look at that I completely agree that, you know, uh, Twitter is not the place for that. The reason, the question, of course, is, well, then, well, then why didn't you know that already? And the answer is, well, I've had conversations along these lines. I mean, I've done journalistic work on communism and neo-Nazism in the past and genocidal violence in different parts of the world and talked about those issues. And, you know, people come at you with ad hominem attacks. They'll still look at your name, David Joseph, and they'll attack you for being Jewish. They'll look at the fact that you have a Ukraine, I have a Ukrainian flag in my account. They'll attack me for that. Um, and occasionally some death threats, maybe here and there. This was an entirely different thing. This was this was more death threats and people telling me to kill myself within within hours than I could possibly keep track of. This exploded so fast and so violently that I had never seen anything like it before. And, we, and did that start from the original article or did that come about once you tried to defend yourself on Twitter? So the article, I did receive some, I guess, yeah, hate mail, you could say, but not, no, no death threats or anything of that nature. It was when I made the argument on Twitter that people immediately started to uh, attack me and that's where it came from. But it was in the most bad faith way you could imagine twisting what I said. So, for instance, one person responded to me saying, well, you know, uh, Stalin did some really good things too. To which I replied, well, "Okay, uh, Hitler had environmental protection programs. So what? Because nothing could possibly 
balance the evil that like, what are you, what are you talking about? And people saw that and said, oh, look, David is saying that Hitler had environmental, but so David is defending Hitler. David is a Hitlerite. And I'm like, no, I'm attacking someone for saying such an <laughs> argument. It didn't matter. It didn't matter because this, it was so bad faith at this point. Have you ever had, have you ever had a Twitter pile on before? A big public Twitter pylon where something you tweeted went viral and in a bad way. Man, you just got unlucky that the first one was one where the stakes were so high because uh, many of us have been burned uh, several times and just realize how radioactive social media is, how the algorithms are designed to amplify things that are going to enrage people or reaffirm people's prejudices. That is what they're all about. They just they just after they're pretty good. The algorithms at mindlessly feeding people what's going to generate likes and clicks and shares. And someone saying that Hitler had great agricultural policies is uh, catnip to the algorithm. And so that's just going to go far and wide. And it, it, to me, it's like even hearing you try to justify the idea of a rational conversation about things that are so nuanced in moral philosophy and so misunderstood and toxic and polarizing in contemporary culture is it's it's quaint it's like someone standing in the middle of a thunderstorm like a, a hurricane inside a porta toilet convention where there's shit flying everywhere and they're trying to like polish a diamond in the middle of a hurricane of feces and are wondering why the, the diamond keeps getting dirty that is not a bad that is not a bad description. Yeah. I mean, now the thing is like a lot of the noise coming at me was from, you know, random accounts that had been created within, within days or hours and, and a bunch of other accounts where if you just look at the account, they're obvious, they're, they're self-identifying themselves as communists or Leninists. And so there's a lot of that. And I ignored a lot of that coming from those individuals. What really caught my attention was that there were several journalists with large followings who, who jumped in on the pylon, who, who I know for a fact, I mean, they must have known better. They must have known that I wasn't saying any of the things that I was accused of. And yet they were, they were spreading it and they were adding their own commentary to it. And they were one, one of them, this is a local journalist, uh, whose name I won't repeat, but, um, said that my, and said it in a way that almost seemed that they had reason, evidence to believe this. My ancestors were actually Nazis who had killed thousands of Jews. Uh, like, and they, and they, they, they put this out on, on Twitter, uh, and people were engaging with this, with this tweet. So I responded. Do you have German ancestry? No, no. No, my ancestors were targeted by Nazis. It's the he flipped it. He took the truth and just flipped it completely around. So this is you know it was disgusting. Did you ever talk to him about the, about that tweet? I quote tweeted the the tweet saying, "Okay, saying basically, okay, so my ancestors were not Jews who were killed by Nazis. They were Nazis who were killed by Jews." And then underneath that, I put uh, some of the other sort of instances in the past where this specific journalist has told some pretty horrific lies or, or smeared people for other reasons that I had found and said, just for people to see, like, look, look who you're dealing with. This, this person is not a reliable source. The only thing that I can think of there would be that if you have a Ukrainian flag and this person is full of Kremlin propaganda about Ukrainians being Nazis, that he thinks that you're 
uh, sympathy for Ukraine makes you a Nazi. I don't know. Maybe do you have it? Yeah, if you have Ukrainian. No, you're right. I believe that the that the original tweet actually did say that my ancestors were Ukrainian Nazis. So yes, you're you're right. That that's probably what triggered it. Right. Okay. Because yeah, because the Kremlin is on an anti-fascist campaign in Ukraine. And then you were reprimanded for publicly chastising this person who publicly chastised you, this colleague, or it was part of the ultimate firing. My response to him. So, so I was, uh, there was a review, um, of, of the exchange there where there was a determination to be made about what had happened to me. And sorry, when did it first come to your attention, David, that this had gone, that this had essentially spilled outside of the firewall of social media. Because I think what's interesting about your case and one reason why I want to publicize it and one reason why I want people to back you and to have a spine when things like this happens is not so much that social media is going is to is gonna do what social media is going to do, but that people outside social media in the actual institutions of, of power and authority or what should be people who should know better are being cowed by what goes on on social media. And I think we need to build a better firewall between social media mobs and quote-unquote real life. So at what point do you get the the inkling that this is starting to spill out into real life? Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I mean, I think that these Twitter mobs should just be ignored and they'll go away within days. That, that They'll find another target. Uh, uh, it, it didn't spill out into real life until, um, let me think, so it was blowing up. I contacted my boss. I was like, this is different than what than the than the attacks I've received in, in the past for other journalistic work I've done. This is more personalized. And the response was basically, it's Twitter. You know, who cares? And I and I said, Well, what should I do here? Like I like what you know, what's the what's the right thing to do? And and the response was, um, can't tell you what to do with your account. Sort of it's your, you know. Do what you will, essentially. Uh, and I was like, okay, okay. Uh, but I was quite shaken, the the death threats. And, and there were even references somehow. Somebody knew that I do have a baby daughter. One person referenced my daughter. Another person was engaging with a family member who doesn't even live, you know, on the West Coast. And I'm, so I was starting to get a little freaked out. And I was shaken and I was, I, I was talking to my boss, like, you know, expressing this, like, this is really getting to me. And my boss was like, just, just, just step away from the, you know, just step away, have a glass of wine, try to, try to collect yourself and, and stop looking at Twitter really. Um, and then that, that the Ukrainian Nazi thing, the journalist, and the fact that he was a journalist really uh, struck me and I made my response to him. Uh, so then there was a, deter- there was a, um, determination made as, uh, you know, let's see the tweets, let's see what happened looking at the tweets. Okay. You obviously never, you never defended Hitler or any such thing. This is ridiculous. This is a bunch of lies. And I said, yeah, I, I know that. Okay. Well then in that case, uh, you're good. We've got your back. This, we're not going to stand for a lying Twitter mob coming after one of our own smearing you in this way. And, and I was like, okay, thank you. And this is, this is happening how and where? Is this a phone call with the yeah. head of the editorial board? Right. And a couple hours later, the same person called me back and fired me. This is the same boss that you were talking about earlier. Yeah. And the reason given was that I had, that, that Ukrainian Nazi journalist 
that was a, considered an engagement after I was told just just step away and have a have a glass mm. of wine, relax. Was that journalist at the same newspaper at the Seattle Times? No, no, this is no different person. This is this the person who uh, accused my ancestors of being Nazis. This is some a journalist who runs a blog, um, but it's quite it's known within certain circles. So I, I felt the need to respond because this is this is a semi credible journalist smearing my family. Right, but also a semi credible journalist potentially has connections with your employers, publishers, editorial colleagues who are random on, rando on Twitter whose account was created three hours ago may not. Potentially. I would I would say unlikely, but potentially, yes. Or at least they're more likely to be sympathetic towards uh, that person's legitimacy and your misjudgment in amplifying that criticism of you than they would be if you were arguing with uh, an, an account with a picture of an egg on it and three followers, or maybe not. No, yeah, no, that's no. Some and somebody might have contacted uh, the paper to say, like, look, look, you know. Um, in fact, somebody somebody did contact the paper to say, with my response, you know, my ancestors were not. My ancestors were not Jews. Who were hunted by Nazis. They were Nazis. Who were somebody said, oh look, he's confessing that his ancestors were Nazis who killed tens of thousands of Jews. My sarcasm was read as literal and my refutation was read as a confession. And, you know, again, the most bad faith reading imaginable, but somebody contacted the paper with this information to say, look, his, he's saying it. His ancestors were Nazis. And um, and this was handed back to me as uh, people are saying this about you. And I said, okay. Right. And then it becomes less about about what's true or about what you've said, and it becomes more about what a lot of people are saying, and so it, it kind of brings bad a bad image to the newspaper, regardless of whether or not you're at fault. You've sort of instigated this uh, this thing, and so a lot of people are saying, you know, you always, that's that's a way for people to avoid having to take responsibility for their actions, just to point to this mystical lot of people saying kind of uh, uh, climate, and uh, and. Uh, try to bolster the the reputation of whatever they're trying to defend by uh, by defending it from these imaginary quote unquote lot of people who are saying something that you don't have any control over and that the the uh, the newspaper can't uh, can't refute. Um, so when so that second call when your boss calls you back, did you what time of day is it? And when you saw the number on you light up on your phone, did you know what was going to happen? So. Uh... So the night before, after I responded to that, that slander, that journalist, uh, the last thing I got was I was told, okay, look, uh, you know, HR says, let, let the Twitter mob die off. Just let it, just let it fade. And I was like, okay, all right, fine. And in the morning there was a review of the exchange and a determination was made like, you're complete. You're innocent here. We've got your back. This is a lying mob. You, you know, maybe the conversation you were having was too nuanced for Twitter about the comparison, but you weren't. You're not in any way saying these this these horrible. Things. And, and and this is being articulated to you how in a phone conversation from your boss while you're still at home in the morning, or are you in the office at this stage? Uh, it was like a, it was a Zoom call uh, with me and uh, my boss and another journalist. Are you are you working from home at this stage, or do you work from the office? 
it, it's a mixture. On this particular day, I was I wasn't planning on going into the office. Uh, some days I do, and some days uh, and I don't. And on this day, I wasn't. So right. I got this. Call. And sorry, I cut you off because of the delay. That other journalist was brought in. Why? Uh, brought in because they had experienced a similar pylon, and so they were to, there to let me know that this does happen. It is unfair. You might be freaking out a little bit, but I'm here to let you know that we've got your back, and you know this is you, you'll get through this. I've been there where you are. You'll get through it. I got through it. You're okay. You didn't say any of these things that they're accusing you of. This is nonsense, you know. And and of course, journalism being journalism, the truth is what matters, right? Facts matter, right? So. The fact is, you never said any of these things. We looked at everything. It's not true. We got you. Okay. Thank you, because I was worried about that. No, don't worry. We got you. Okay. A couple hours later, I pick up the phone. Effective immediately, etc. And you, when you say you pick up the phone, your boss called you? Yeah. 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 And I'm just wondering what your state of mind is, like how, how nervous you are at this point. Do you know what he's... Are you suspicious that? No, no idea. No, no idea. No idea at all. I, uh, I, my, I, I naively believed that when I was told uh, repeatedly and repeatedly and emphatically that they had my back, I, I took that at, at face value. And so, what did he say to, to? How did he? How did he pull off the pivot? Uh, the reason given was that I had continued to engage after I was told not to engage, which is interesting because I was literally told we can't tell you what to do. But I was also advised. And to me, it felt like friendly advice because I was like, I'm freaking out. I'm kind of worried. And I was like, just have some wine and chill, man. Step away from Twitter. That was then interpreted as a directive. Which An is, instruction. Yeah. Right. And I violated that when I told this journalist um, when I disputed that my ancestors were Nazis, uh, that that was my that was my further engagement. So what's actually going on? Because I mean, uh, you know, you can get caught up forever in the in the minutiae of what of why they claim that they got rid of you. But obviously, you came in. They had a shit sandwich on their hands on social, and instead of having a spine and being like. Uh, well, it's just a mob on social media and he's an idiot for having engaged. They're like, this is a firing offense and we have to turn your life upside down. What do you, do you have any suspicion about? Is it that the editor, that your boss changes his mind? Is it that the publisher steps in and goes, what the fuck is going on? Is it the shareholders? I don't even know if it's a public company. The shareholders get in touch. What do you think? Uh, My, my guess uh, I mean, I have no, you know, this is pure speculation, but my guess would be that the, the proper course of action was taken, that was handled the way that it should have been handled with the determination and analysis of the evidence. And then, and that was all as it should have been. And the conclusion was you didn't do anything wrong. And, and then everything, that whole process was just completely overruled, I think, by the publisher. That's, that's my guess. So they did everything the way they should have done it. They came to the right conclusion, which is you didn't do anything. You probably shouldn't have gotten into that conversation, but you, you we got you here. No, you're fine. We're not going to fire you over a bunch of lies. And you don't have any evidence for this, but it's just the speed of the turnaround that makes you suspicious. The speed of the turnaround and the and the and what I perceive to be the deep authenticity of 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 the message that they that they had my back. I mean, it was told to me in a way that was 
meaningful. Like right. it was, it was told with, um, with emotion almost. I mean, it was like, don't, don't worry about this. You're fine. Like it was really, so the, so the turnaround from the same person didn't make any sense. It, it just, within hours, I mean, it just, to me, that has to be, uh, uh, I don't know, an order from on high, perhaps. Mm. And again, the, for people who don't know newspapers, newspapers, you know, although they are supposed to be editorially independent, uh, ultimately they're answerable to the publisher who owns the entire paper and is not intervening on a daily basis in editorial decisions, but does uh, is held liable for whatever the paper says, ultimately and uh, is able to overrule what the editors want to do. So once you're fired, what do they leave you with? What, what kind of severance do they leave you with? What happens to your lease? What happens to your family? What happens to your job? What, like, where are you? Uh, yeah, despite the reason being continued engagement, a public statement was put out that if you read it, makes it sound like I was fired for the for the accusations that I was facing for defending Hitler or being a Hitlerite or something of that nature with an apology in the message that, you know, we're sorry for hurting the community or, or something to that effect. Uh, so what happened after that was obviously there's no, there's no story in, you know, Twitter, Twitter idiots uh, falsely accuse a journalist of being a Hitlerite. That's not a story. Journalist fired for being accused of defending Hitler. That's that's a story. So then the headlines rolled out as a result of my firing, and you know several outlets covered it. Um, and uh, the headlines weren't good, you know, because some of them took they they took the worst possible angle. Fired for defending Hitler uh, was one that I saw. So facing a a, a, a steep lease that uh, frankly we can't afford, uh, just moved here less than two months ago, uh, not sure where to go next or how to afford getting there. Um, not, I mean, it's just, yeah, as you, as you put it, uh, my, my world has been turned upside down in, in that sense. And, um, I'm still in the middle of figuring things out, but it's not, it's not only am I now without a job and in a situation uh, with my apartment here and all of that, but try the prospects of trying to find a job when I've been smeared in this way at, you know, and any, any potential employer looks and, and says, they Google my name and the algorithm pulls up headlines that say that I defended Hitler. <laughs> it's not, that's not, I mean, that's, um, uh, that's a curse. Well, you can't hide it. You sort of got to lead with it, don't you? You sort of got to make it the, make it, I mean, your thing of like, so here's this thing that happened. That was the debate. That was, that was an internal conflict that I was having, which is there's, there's basically when you're in a situation like this, there are two paths. You know, what I wanted was a very nuanced middle of the road uh, path where I could reason my way, you know, that's sort of what got me into trouble in the first place. As one friend told me, he was like, this is your, this is Mr. Good faith, David. This is exactly what you were doing on Twitter, engaging these people. Whereas if you would just ignore them, you know, like you're, you're, he accused me of being too good faith. And he's like, now you're trying to sort of go, you're trying to do it. No, you have two very stark options and it's either go, go dead silent. And maybe in two years, which I can't afford, but maybe in two years, you know, you can start applying. Um, or 
the other path is, you know, um, try to tell the story, tell the truth. You're a journalist, so tell the truth. Uh, tell what happened to you. Uh, maybe write an essay about it. Um, you know, like lead with lead with that, and uh, and lean into it uh, because honestly, you've been put in a situation where you don't have a third option. Uh, that was sort of like the bitter truth. Uh, he's a good friend, and and I didn't want to hear that necessarily, but I I think that is where I am. Unfortunately, I'm so sorry, David. It's just a horrible position to be in with the responsibility of uh, a young family at the same time. It's not like you have the luxury of uh, swanning around, uh, you know, crashing on friends' couches and stuff at this point in your life. So how are you paying bills? Uh, well, um, we have to try to find a way. Yeah. So my my wife has a job. She still has her job. Uh, m- me personally, uh, as as the... You know, this is a pattern that is that is happening with other journalists. But I have a Substack now. <laughs> That's the only means of income that I have at this point. Uh, for many years, I had been, as I mentioned before, I've been already been writing uh, about neo-Nazism and uh, other forms of fascism and communism and genocidal violence. And because of the nature of the accusation leveled against me, I thought. Okay, I'll, uh, my Substack will be about uh, political extremism and fascism and communism. So I'll just, you know, that's a meaningful subject that that has always spoken because of my family background, because of this whole scandal. That's something that speaks directly to my experience uh, recently and and uh, over the years. So that's what the Substack is about. That's my source of income right now. Um, that that's my only source of income. Well, hopefully that becomes wildly successful and pays you more than the Seattle Times uh, would have because that is the future for people who want to actually wrestle with big ideas outside of the censorious hysteria of, uh, of the mob. Um, where can people go? Where can people find you to check out your work and hopefully subscribe? And it's called you? The Radicalist. Uh, uh, my last name uh v-o-l-o-d-z-k-o dot substack dot com sounds suspiciously nazi i've got to say (laughs) suspiciously nazi right right david um good luck stay in touch hopefully you get a few subscribers out of this i will be one of them um and it's it's an incredible story I, i would have thought that it was uh de rigueur in 2020 or 2021 uh i'm i'm surprised yeah. that it's happening yeah, in 2023 it's... i thought we'd started to i thought we'd started to quarantine the madness of uh, of social media and understand that it's not representative of anything mm. uh but there you go <clears throat> um david break a leg thank you for telling us about it good to talk to you thank you have a great day